And tonight, I wanted to speak on the topic of reconciliation. Um, and in a way, coming to Spirit Rock is, whether here or up in the retreat center, there's a big retreat going on now, is really like coming into the temple, if you will. Um, and one of the functions of the temples that I practiced in in Asia was that they were places of reconciliation. So the forest monastery of my teacher, Ajahn Chah, was in the Thai province that bordered Cambodia and Laos. And I was there during the period of the wars in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. So we weren't really far from that. And in fact, I had worked in Laos and spent some time in Vietnam also. And at night, there was a big air base near there. You could see the jets and the planes taking off. And at night, you could see the bombers going overhead, and you could even see the flashes of light sometimes on the horizon. So it wasn't that far away, the war. And for anybody who has not been in a war zone, uh, people um, become so frightened and desperate that they do anything. They'll tear their own temples down and sell things to, you know, try to get money or to save themselves. They'll treat one another in terrible ways but also sometimes in noble ways. Um, but there's a kind of collective madness that happens in wartime. And uh, we were visited in the temple when I was there as a monk by some friends of mine who were working for the Quakers in Vietnam during that war, doing peace projects in the middle of the wartime. And they came to see me and spend some time there. And they complained when they came in. They said, what good are you and all these monks doing? I mean, here's the war out here, and there's bombing, and people are getting killed, and we got to go out and we have to do something. And they asked Ajahn Chah about it, and he said, well, we're interested in stopping the war too, but we have to learn where the war starts. And then he pointed to his heart. He said, if you don't know how to stop the war here, you're not going to stop it out there any better than you know, all the people were still fighting. So they spent some time there and a week or 10 days meditating, walking these paths, swept paths underneath the canopy of the jungle and the forest. And after a while, they began to learn on the last day we had this long conversation. And they recognized that the forest monastery was like a living, library. It was an island of peace and sanity in a somewhat insane world. Nearby bombings, people stealing, people frightened, all the kinds of things that happen. You could walk in this monastery and lose your wallet like Courtney did, and someone would pick it up for you and save it, you know, and there it would be on the altar, you know. Or you could have some difficulty and people would come and try and help you. Um, it was a place of integrity, of virtue, uh, of non-exploitation, where people's vows were to care for every form of life as best as they could. Even the little ants that would cross the path in the jungle, you would step over the ants so that you didn't harm them. And my friends began to realize, and Ajahn Chah talked with them, that wars come and go. Um, and what the temple offered to the world was a whole other imagination, a whole other way of being. That human beings can live with nobility and with compassion and with forgiveness and reconciliation and care for every form of life, one another and all the life around. And that this is possible in this very world. So here's this temple, um, and Ajahn Chah talked about it as the holder of the middle way, the middle path between gain and loss, and praise and blame, and birth and death, and joy and sorrow. There is a seat taken by all those who awaken, the seat of the Buddhas, who you are actually when you remember, that sees the play of life, of all of these things, and finds a freedom and compassion and nobility in the midst of it.
O nobly born, the Buddhist texts begin, remember who you really are. Do not forget your true nature. And it's not just in the Buddhist tradition. Um, if you look in the mystical texts from the Nag Hammadi scrolls that were found in these um, vases in the caves in the Middle East going back from around the time, the Gnostics around the time of Jesus, um, there's this wonderful kind of feminine voice called the, the, the voice from the thunder um, where she says, I am the firstborn and the last. I am the mother of my father and I am the first, the last, and every part of both. I am the honored one and the scorned. I am the barren one who has borne many sons. I am the bride and the bridegroom. Know me. I am incomprehensible in silence, and I am the memory that is never lost. I am the one whose voice sounds everywhere, for I am knowledge and ignorance and I am the joining and the dissolving. I am what lasts and what goes. I am the hearing in all ears. I am the stories and the truth. Hear me in softness, know me in roughness. I am she who cries out and she who answers. I am the one who exists and does not exist, and there is no one to judge me, for I am beyond it all. That's a mystical poem. Um, and more than a mystical poem, it, it invites us to remember that we're here in the midst of the mystery. I mean, yeah, you know, how did the Dow Jones do today, right? And what's, you know, the political campaigns that are happening and what's happening, you know, on the traffic and so forth. But how did you get into this human body? You know, and the particular one you have now, which is only a temporary address, you should understand. You get it from Avis or something like that for a while, and you have to turn it back in. I, you think I'm kidding, don't you? Right, you rent it, and then it runs up the miles, and you turn it back in. But how do you get into it? And what is this mystery of being alive on this cooled-down part of a star, hanging in the midst of the great galaxy? Nobody really knows. So you come to the temple, and it's really an invitation to remember something so much bigger than the day-to-day -day conflicts and difficulties and fears and you know busyness of our life, to remember that which is vast and silent and timeless. I start with this also because it's September 11th and the media out there is doing kind of the overdose media hype orgy on, you know, 9-11, 9-11 all the time on every channel kind of thing. Um, and it was terrible. And I know people who were right there and it was a terrible thing. And one of the candles here is for those who died. It's also true that today it's terrible in Darfur and it's terrible in East Timor and it's terrible for the five million people who are in the U.S. prison system, these horrible prisons, um, which have become also our default mental hospitals in many states, you know. Um, and so the other candle is for all the other people. Now, one impulse when you hear the barrage of the news and the politicization of this event and the other events and so forth is just to say, all right, enough, turn the news off, which is not a bad idea. This is a poem by Veronica Patterson entitled A Charm, A Magic Charm Against the Language of Politics. You could use it. After watching TV, say over and over the names of things, the clean nouns, weeping birch, bloodstone, tanager, damask rose. Read field guides, atlases, 
gravestones. At the store, bless each apple by kind. Macintosh, wine sap, delicious, Jonathan, Granny Smith. Enunciate the vegetables, okra, parsnip, calendula. When you have compared the politicians' slippery platforms, chant the spiders, comb-footed, round-headed, orb spider, garden cross, feather-legged, ogre-faced, black widow. Remember that most short verbs are ethical. Hatch, grow, spin, trap, eat. Dig deep, pronounce clearly, pull the words in over your head, and hole up for the duration. (laughs) So one impulse, and not really an unwise one, is to say enough of all this hype that's taken over what happened as a tragedy and made it into all these other things. But the problem is that you really can't go away because we're all connected. I remember being with Thich Nhat Hanh at one point years ago, Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, and in this little discussion group we were having, somebody raised their hand and said, "Um, could you please say something about karma, and I'm particularly interested in group karma. Why did the Vietnam War happen to the Vietnamese people, you know, these million and a half or two million people who died, and and um, millions of tons of bombs that were dropped. Did the Vietnamese people do something collectively in the past that brought that karma to fruition so that the war happened to them? And Thich Nhat Hanh paused in that question and sat for a while, and his eyes got kind of teary, you know, because it's such a painful question, really. And then he looked up, and he said the Vietnam, the Vietnam War didn't happen to the Vietnamese. It happened to all of us. And that's all he would say. So even if we you know, take Veronica Patterson's charm, which is not a bad idea, and pull back, still we know, we have the knowledge of what's going on in the world because it's a part of us and we're connected with it. And we can't completely leave. Um, There was this amazing, wonderful story on National Public Radio about a plant that was supposed to be extinct in the Mauritius Islands in the Indian Ocean. I don't know if anyone heard this. But it was a a famous plant in the island, um, and it had gone extinct. And it was being taught in, you know, middle school by the biology teacher. And then one little boy said, oh, we have one of those in our garden. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 it went extinct 100 years ago, and it was important in our culture and so forth. And he kept pressing the teacher, and finally the teacher went and looked, and sure enough, it looked like it, and they got all the biologists to come over, and there was this plant, and it was still alive. It was a little scraggly, but there it was. Okay, so they called all the botanists and biologists, the Wildlife Foundation, and then he started to look for other ones. They couldn't find any other. There was one. Okay, so this obscure little skinny bush at the boys' house becomes this national treasure. (laughs) Not every day you find the one plant left in the world of its kind, right? So there it was. The problem was it was being eaten by goats, right? (laughs) So the government put up a fence around it and took photos and so forth, a little barbed wire. And then people saw there was a fence, and they thought there must be special something special about this plant. And so they started to come and take its leaves to cure hangovers and get rid of diseases, because otherwise they wouldn't put it in its little fence there. must be really precious. So they put a bigger fence around it, and then they climbed over. People climbed over. Finally, they ended up having a guard, 24-hour guard, for the poor plant. Now, they... they, they gave it water and fertilized it and tried to get it to propagate, and they couldn't get it to do it, really, for several years. So they decided that they would take a cutting, a slip from it, which they did, and they sent it to Kew Gardens in London, which is the big center of botanicals in the, in the former British Empire. Um, and um, 
they put it British Air, you know, flew it first class, these little cuttings, and right? And got it there, whisked them to the laboratory, and they kept, you know, trying to grow it. And for 20 years, it grew into a nice little plant, so now there are two of them, right? And they kept trying to get it to reproduce, to flower, but it wouldn't do it. They tried, and they tried different things. And then finally, after 20 years, they had an idea of giving a kind of shot of a plant hormone, and they gave it this sex hormone shot, sort of, or something kind of like it. You know how that goes. And after about three weeks, they saw a little swelling, and it produced a tiny little fig on this. And they'd been waiting. They couldn't believe it. They were so excited, you know, that it really started to have babies. In the plant world, this was a big deal. So they called their friends back in the Mauritius Island, and guess what? That one little plant that had been sitting there, the scraggly one by the house, exactly that week brought out a little fig at exactly the same time. As if, as we say, as if they were connected, because they are. When we were in India, my wife and I, 25, 30 years ago, um, we were up in the mountains studying with this great yogi, Vimla Thakar. Um, and she uh, was giving us different meditation instructions, and my wife had this terrible vision at one point um, in her meditation of uh, uh, death of someone in her family and all this whole thing. And I kept saying, oh, you know, meditation opens the whole shadow side, and don't worry about it, it's common, and try to reassure her. And I was um, quite wrong. And because 10 days later, we got a telegram that said, to, to Liana, my wife, that said, your brother Paul has died um, of suicide, it turned out. Um, and then we looked, and the telegram was dated the same day that she had the vision, and he died in the way that she had seen. Now, everybody's heard stories like this. You know why? Because it's true. I mean, there's no other way to explain it. Because in this mystery of consciousness, of being alive, we are connected. And so even if we try to black off from the madness of the world, we still carry Iraq and Afghanistan and the, what will end up being one trillion dollars that are spent on those wars and the subsequent um, veterans for all the uh, things for all the people who've been injured over you know decades ahead and all the things that we have to do. Ten percent of it would would have would feed the the eight to ten thousand children who died every day from uh, lack of proper nutrition and really simple diseases that we could cure. And we know this, we carry this. We carry the war in Lebanon and the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis in our, our prison system, and we carry the racism that's in the world, which is so insane, racism, you know, because it's conditioned and it's trained in the society, us versus them, you know, the new immigrants. Well, it's the, the Irish or the Italians or the... You know, for a while it was the Germans in the early part of last century who were everybody had to watch out for the Germans around the First World War time. Um, then it was the you know the Nazi fascists. Then it was the commie bastards, right? Now it's just the latest new enemy. You know, the immigrants or the Muslims or something like that. Um, <laughs> did I hear the Democrats over there? the libertarians I worry about, yeah. <laughs> and it's as if we just allow one, we choose one group after another to be the enemy. And the way that it happens, here's an expert speaking. This is from the Nuremberg Trials. Naturally, the common people don't want war, but after all, it's the leaders of the country who determine the policy and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it is a democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. Voice or no voice, 
The people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. This is Hermann Goering at the Nuremberg trial explaining how it works. From the perspective of the Buddha Dharma, mind is the forerunner of all things, or Kensi Rinpoche, who says mind creates both samsara and nirvana, yet there is nothing much to it. It's just thoughts. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. So we start to sit in meditation and see the kinds of thought constructs and the kind of conditioning that we have. This cartoon I often read from the New Yorker shows these two generals striding down the hall of the Pentagon, um, one speaking to the other. It really shook me, I can tell you. I dreamed the meek inherited the earth. <laughs> so we have these different ideas um, that are conditioned in us. And one of the tasks when you come to the temple is to stop like that, that jungle forest monastery that was the living library of another way of being. Now, it's not that easy. I was listening to the radio yesterday or the day before, the national poetry thing on NPR, um, and someone was reading in this very kind of beautiful, actorly voice, a poem by John Greenleaf Whittier about Barbara Fritchie, this kind of great Civil War poem. And the poem has um, uh, this woman, Barbara, Barbara Fritchie, um, in, the ta in Maryland during the Civil War when General Lee and Sherman are coming through. And she's four score and ten. She's 90 years old. And, you know, they say, tear down all the, all the Union flags. And she sticks her head out of the window and holds the flag up that was torn down anyway and says, anyone tears this flag down will have to take me down with it. And the, the general stops somehow and acknowledges her and says, no one harms this woman. And she holds her flag up as even though the, you know, the southern troops are going through. So it's this great patriotic poem. And it's quite famous. And I was listening to it. And the disgusting thing is that it was very stirring. <laughs> I mean, I could feel, you know, where's the lines? You shoot if you must this old gray head, but spare the country's flag, you know, and there's this whole patriotic thing. And it was done in this beautiful way with great music and, you know, good voice and stuff. And I could feel that um, because there's a certain courage in it. And this is the part that's really confusing because what it does is it touches a kind of archetype of courage the archetype of the warrior or the archetype of, the, of the, the, the person who defends their people or whatever it is at any cost. And what wakes up in us what is a kind of dignity or nobility. Yes, I can do this. The problem is, what kind of nobility? What kind of dignity? I mean, what is real nobility? What is it to sacrifice? What are our deep values? You know, are we going to sacrifice for consumerism and our American way of consumption? We live in a world that has, in many ways, in a culture that's defined by the absence of the sacred. And so there's something in us. I think there's something in the whole imagination of America as a country that has a beautiful vision and a nobility when you read the founding documents, even if the founding fathers didn't really do all that. And that poem, that great poem by Langston Hughes, where he says um, something like, uh, he, he says, you know, I, I believe in America, or I honor America, the America that never was, you know, the America that could be. Um, but there's something that's noble in the vision of democracy and in the vision of, of uh, a country that's, you know, set on being governed 
by the people and for the people and so forth. But then that gets turned in some way, um, you know, in these kind of patriotic ways or so forth. It touches the archetype, and we think that that's the real nobility. Because we long for it. We want nobility. We want purpose. Martin Luther King gives an alternative. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. This is right after his temple was bombed, his church was bombed, people were killed. And we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours as well. So there is a nobility and there is a kind of dignity. And we need to find that in ourselves and in the world. The Buddha puts it this way. He says the real enemy is ignorance. That's the real enemy. And he goes on to say, I, me, mine, this is part of that ignorance of the enemy. Separating us from them, that's the real enemy. And that, if you want to look to stand up for something, Chan Master Sheng Yan says, those who do not have faith in others will not be able to stand on their own. Those who are suspicious will always be lonely. The real practice is a practice of connection and reconciliation and a recognizing that we are interdependent. And if you want to stand for something, it's to stand up for the redwood trees and the rainforests and the coral reefs, you know, and for the life, the web of life that you are woven into. personally and globally. And this is really what brings freedom. Now, the Buddha is really fierce about this in the, in the Buddhist teachings. He says, look how he abused me. He beat me. He threw me down and robbed me. This isn't like, oh, he said some things that I didn't like. You know, he didn't treat me that well. Uh, he was emotionally difficult or whatever. He abused me, he beat me, he threw me down and robbed me. Continue such thoughts and you live in hate. Look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down and robbed me. Abandon these thoughts and live in love, even if this has happened. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? In this world, hatred never ends by hatred but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal truth. So this is, I mean, this is pretty strong medicine. He beat me, he threw me down, he robbed me. Abandon this, these thoughts, even if it happened, or else you are chained to the past. You are chained to your history. You're not free. And if you want to find dignity and nobility, what choice will you make? So much compassion is needed in this world of joy and sorrow and gain and loss and praise and blame. It's not an easy thing. And if you turn on the television, almost any channel, you can see it's sort of the channel that asks for your compassion. And yet it's possible. And more than possible, it is it's like oxygen to the heart. It's the thing that brings us alive as human beings. I read a few weeks ago, but I'll read it again, um, this passage from Yitzhak Frankenthal, whose son was murdered at a rally outside the Prime Minister's residence in Jerusalem. He said, my beloved son Ari, my own flesh and blood, 
who was smiling with the innocence of a child, was killed by Palestinian gunmen, my son. And yet, if to hit his killers, innocent Palestinian children and other civilians would have to be killed, if the security forces were to kill even one in innocent Palestinian as well, I would tell them they were no better than my son's killers. Even should they have the information about the whereabouts of my son's murderer, should he turn out that he was surrounded by one child, even if they knew that the killer was planning another attack, and they had the choice of curbing that attack and killing an innocent human beings, I would tell the security forces, no, do not seek revenge. Prevent even one death of an innocent life, not in my son's name. So there is a nobility. And in these times, it's really important to feel it and sense it and live from it. It has a freedom in it that's not bound by the conditions around us, but it's a freedom to follow the wisdom of the heart, to follow the connectedness that we share. And when we come to sit in meditation, part of our practice is to bring that spirit of dignity, nobility, and reconciliation to our own experience. We sit and we become mindful, compassionate as we meditate. And all the different parts of our own life that are difficult will show themselves. I mean, I know you sit there and you look very quiet and Buddha-like, but that that's really just a kind of sham. <laughs> and that in there, you're doing reruns and, you know, planning and advertisements and you know, dating and all kinds of stuff is happening in there. You know, if we could plug in the little, you know, wire in there and put it on the speakers, you'd be so embarrassed, right? <laughs> Let it all come out. So this reconciliation is not just political, although the world in a vast way needs it from us to learn this as human beings, but it's also a reconciliation with all that's conflicted and um, mixed in our own life, because we carry it all within us. And I think about the people who I've talked to recently in retreats. There was a, a man who came to see me who has early mid-Alzheimer's. He is in the mid-70s and he's done a lot of years of practice. He and his wife came. And it's really painful. He's frightened. He's losing his ability to remember anything. Um, so he was asking, how do I deal with my fear? And she was frightened because he's so clingy and he's with her all the time. And she's dying of, you know, trying to now be the mom for this grown man who's more like a child that she has to take care of. And we talked a lot about what reconciliation would look like at this cycle in their life. What each would have to accept about the other. That she couldn't take care of him all the time. And that he would never be the person that he was for her in that way. Or somebody else who came up whose mother died um, and now he was in a lot of conflict with his half-brothers and sisters around the inheritance, you know, because it wasn't left evenly to everybody. Gosh, ever hear that plot, you know, from Shakespeare <laughs> or wherever. Um, and there's not, I mean, yes, there are legal solutions. But I remember doing a day on reconciliation and forgiveness for many of the people from the Ninth District Federal Circuit Court who came here to Spear Rock some years ago. And one of the people said, we're here because at our level, the law has failed people. And we need to find another way to help them solve their problem. So in this family, yes, you could maybe solve it legally, but there's a different level of reconciliation that's absolutely critical to find, or everyone will be unhappy for the next 50 years. For what? For some money. Or the man who came up who was grieving because of the eating disorder of his daughter. And he was frightened, hurt, confused, all of those things, and wanted to be close to her and didn't know how to help her. And, you know, 
eating disorders are so difficult that when you talk about the different kinds of addictions and things, if it's drugs or alcohol, you, you know, in some way you can stop. I mean, there are forms and ways, but you can't stop eating. You have to eat. And you have to come to terms with how to do it in a wise way. You have to reconcile with the needs of your body. This poem from Alison Luderman, one of my favorite poets in the East Bay, she says, you know me, I want everything and the nothing it birthed out of, knowing I can't have anything unless I surrender attachments, which is tricky, somewhat akin to hiding the chocolate chips from, my, from yourself because you're on a diet. Meanwhile, only you know where those chips are hidden. <laughs> Why would desire be so be planted so fiercely in us, if not for some good reason. And I mean, this is the paradox of being a human being and being alive. And we have to reconcile ourselves with desire. It's not that there shouldn't be desire. But how do we do it in a compassionate, in a wise way? Um, sometime earlier this summer, you know, I work with gang kids and various things. Um, and I was called in um, for a death where somebody was um, shot and killed and in the emergency room. And um, generally, because I've been done hospice work and done a lot of training around death, um, sat with many people dying in the charnel grounds and the Buddhist practices, um, it's one of the meditations and practices that I'm used to doing and in this role. Um, I felt able to be there as I have with other deaths and some great degree of equanimity and compassion and do some chanting and things like that. Um, but it was also really shocking to the family that was there, you know, and the, the uh, daughter of this person who was there was, um, a uh, young daughter was really in shock, not in the emergency room, but outside, and the f other family, friends, and people. It was like, oh, what do we do with this? Um, and I was trying to be helpful and so forth. And then a couple of days later, a day or two later, I noticed that I started to get really angry and afraid, much more than I usually am. Usually my mind's pretty, a lot of equanimity and pretty calm. Um, and it was interesting. Uh, I felt almost like I was possessed somehow. Um, and I didn't quite know it at the time. I just felt all this emotion and all this stuff going on. And I could feel it in my body. And I'd had a quite a difficult summer before it because I was busy for three or four months. I more or less didn't stop traveling and teaching when I got back from Asia at the end of March. I just had a very, very full schedule, so I was kind of exhausted. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just exhausted, and that's why I'm getting so grouchy, and I just need to take some time off, and that's why I feel weak and a little unnerved and frightened and so forth. And a couple of days later, it dawned on me, yeah, that was true, but that was only a piece of the puzzle, that actually that particular death had really um, shaken me somehow. Violent death can do that to us. And it was like it was in my body. And what was interesting is for a number of days, um, I turned into an aversion type. And in Buddhist psychology, there are desire, greed types, that's me, writ large, you know, who walk in a room and see the things they like and want more of things and kind of are attached to stuff best, you know. Then there are the people whose temperament is in an aversion type in these, this Buddhist typology are the people who walk in a room and see what's wrong with it, you know, and see what they don't like and what the problems are and they don't like this and they don't like that and so forth. There's a deluded type too, well, I'll get to that. But I turned into an aversion type and I'd come over here and I'd see somebody that I love on the staff and I'd look and I'd say, I don't like the way they're walking, you know. And somebody would talk to me and say, ah, I don't want to listen to them. And, you know, whatever I turned my attention to, I hated something about it. It was like if anything came in, it was painful. And first I thought, I felt very sympathetic to aversion types, you know, for those people, oh my God, to have to live with this all the time, you know. 
and then I began to practice with it. And I said, okay, this is just a version. It was there, and it was really painful. And each time it came up, I started to recognize it. It took me about a day or so. Wow, boy, I am really grouchy. What is this, you know? And then I got to where I could recognize it, and it would come up really quickly. Any little stimulus, and I, I don't like that. And I don't like that either, right? <laughs> and then, as I practiced with it, with it more, I realized not only could I not um, feed it or believe it, but after it came up, I could actually take a breath and do some loving-kindness or compassion practice for that person or that circumstance and change the energy. So it was, it was actually very helpful in a way uh, of, of practicing. Um, and then the other thing that came up was delusion. And I'm, I usually I make a decision, I'm not indecisive, I'm not confused. And I thought, well, should I go and teach this men's retreat that I taught last month? It's really hard. I'm overwhelmed. I'm frightened. I've been working hard all summer. You know, I'm not in a great place. And this is really demanding. And maybe I should just cancel it. I thought, oh, I'll cancel it. And I said, no, I should go. I mean, those guys, they have to do much worse stuff than I do. I mean, I don't get shot at every day in the street. I mean, here I am living in a nice house in Marin, and I'm complaining, right? You know, come on, get it together, guy. No, I shouldn't go. I'm exhausted. I'm and then I realized what incredible suffering it was to live as a delusion type. You know, indecision is really not much fun, is it? And I thought, oh my God, yes, no, I should, I shouldn't. And my mind's going back and forth. So I said, okay, this is just delusion. I know you. That's okay. Finally, I decided to go. Um, um, actually, before it, I did some meditation. Did help actually. And I did my sitting and walking, body work, whatever. And as I did, I just got more and more space and could see all of these things. Um, and I went to the retreat, and I talked about it a couple of some weeks ago. Um, and it was very moving. Um, but what I, the reason I'm telling the story is that when there's trauma, whether it's the trauma of 9-11 or it's the trauma in your personal life or the trauma that you see in other ways in the world and so forth, it's very easy to take it into your body and to get identified and take it into yourself. And then it's really easy to repeat it. That's the thing that's particularly difficult, the kind of repetition, because it, it sticks onto your earlier trauma. You know, if you have something that's painful or difficult, some rupture or some rent or something that happens, or you see it or you're part of it, it kind of um, attaches itself to your earlier trauma. And so then you can end up finding yourself actually repeating it um, in a kind of way that I don't know, in early psychology they talked about repetition compulsion. But really what it is, is we've been hurt in certain ways, and we do it again. We try and get it right. Or we're so traumatized that a little thing comes and it triggers all that old painful history, and we find ourselves back in the middle of it again and again. I have a, I have a friend who is an expert in working with trauma, who's working right now with um, teachers and leaders in both the Palestinian and in the Israeli communities, and with journalists as well, to try to teach them how to release trauma so that the journalists or whoever, the teachers, don't get triggered so easily and then pass it on to the children or the people that they're writing for or something like that. You understand what I'm saying? It's so easy when there's lack of reconciliation for it to come into our body. So what do we do with the suffering? Anybody not have it? Of course, if we have it, it's part of our human, I mean, joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain and gain and loss and fame and disrepute. These are the worldly winds, says the Buddha, that we all experience. So we can either react to it and kind of repeat it, or it can be an initiation. And by initiation, it means that we take our suffering and we use it, transform it to compassion, transform it to reconciliation. Because you will suffer. My teacher Ajahn Chah said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer when I got to the monastery. 
I said, what do you mean? He said, there's two kinds of suffering. The kind that you run away from and it follows you everywhere, or the kind that you turn around and face and with it learn your freedom and compassion. So what is our response going to be? After 9-11, a professor at the School of Arts at Columbia University writes, he was walking down the hall the week after, and New York was still dust and all the things that happened, running into some of the artists, colleagues there, a, a couple of whom said, it feels so absurd making art in a time like this. What's the point? He said, to which I couldn't answer out loud any more than I could have answered if he'd been arguing about the redundancy of beauty or breathing. What could I say? that in June 1945, workers reclaiming the Reich's prisons in Buchenwald found poems folded into thick squares stuffed into the electrical wiring so that a person locked in a cell awaiting interrogation or death would choose to write a poem on a piece of toilet paper so that their spirit facing death would never die. How do we respond to the measure of sorrow that's given to us? This is a very deep question that the Buddha poses to us. What is our response? Is it the response of Vedran Smolovich, who I talk about, who played his cello in the square in Sarajevo while the bombings and snipers happened so that the, he was in the National Symphony, so that the populace of Sarajevo wouldn't give up hope? He did it for three years running played his cello. This is him playing in the bombed-out National Library of Sarajevo. What do we do with the measure of suffering that's given to us? We can either consciously work with the trauma and the sorrow and transform it, or we can add to it. It's part of what meditation asks, not just globally, but in our own families. I say to my breath, said W.S. Merwin, once again, little breath, come in from in front of me, go away behind me. Row me quietly now, as far as you can, for I am an abyss that I am trying to cross. And meditation becomes our temple. It becomes the sanctuary of our body to learn how to find compassion and peace to reconcile the opposites in our life. And as Albert Camus says, we all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes, our ravages. Our task is not to unleash them on the world, it is to transform them in ourselves and in others. So whether inwardly or in our family or community or globally, we use the suffering to deepen compassion, to deepen reconciliation. In Tibet, you actually are given certain prayers where you ask for suffering. May I be granted enough suffering that my heart opens with compassion. Imagine that, praying for it. Or my teacher Ajahn Chah again, he came to London where there was the first Buddhist monastery that was started in the West by his students there, and they'd been there for a couple of years, and he came back to visit. And he said, so how are these few monks and nuns living in this apartment in London? How are you all getting along? How's it going? And the abbot, a friend of mine, said, oh, we're doing pretty good. And he said, pretty good, huh? Then there's not going to be much wisdom, is there? <laughs> he knew it wasn't true, first of all. <laughs> but in some ways, it's in the place of difficulty that our dignity and our nobility and our courage arise. It's there that we find the thing that we most long for, which is this freedom to love, to be present, to be alive in this world. So I have a story for you that some of you may have heard. Um, and it seems really, really fitting for today because exactly 100 years ago today, on September 11th, 1906, was the birthday, the first day, of the movement that Gandhi called 
uh, satyagraha or the movement of truth. It was where where Gandhi's uh, work in the world began on 9/11, 100 years ago today. And I think if the newspapers had headlines, I would like them to to uh, put this in the headline: 100 years ago in Johannesburg, South Africa, Mohandas K. Gandhi went to a meeting. At that time, he was a struggling lawyer. He'd arrived there a few years earlier to serve as a legal advisor for an Indian merchant. He quickly ran headlong into what he called man's inhumanity to man in the form of a racism that was shameless at that time. He was thrown off a train in the first week of his arrival, even though he had a ticket for the compartment he was in because he was not a white person. The affront, and this is really amazing, the affront precipitated what he called the most creative night of his life. You know, one response to terror is to take it in yourself and become it and feel the trauma and then place the trauma on somebody else. Um, a wiser response to suffering is your creativity, is your life, is your compassion. The affront precipitated the most creative night of his life as he struggled with his feelings at the cold mountain station at Peter Mauritzburg. During that night, Gandhi overcame both his impulses to run back to India or to fight the railway company. He decided instead to turn his attention to the much larger questions of racial prejudice, injustice, and exploitation worldwide, and particularly in those colonies. He launched a careful, stepwise campaign to rescue the dignity and rights of the 100,000 indentured Indians in South Africa who at that time had borne the abuses heaped on them with helpless resignation. He established the Natal Indian Congress. He started newspapers. And then in September 1906, the Transvaal Assembly introduced the Asiatic Law or Amendment intended to reduce Indians and Chinese to a semi-criminal status, much like they had to the black South Africans. On September 11th, 100 years ago today, 3,000 Indians, both Hindu and Muslim, indentured and free, gathered in the Empire Theater in Johannesburg to voice their outrage. Gandhi called on them all to pledge non-cooperation with the proposed law, irrespective of what penalties they would face, a form of civil disobedience, satyagraha, ahimsa, which he drew from the great Indian, Buddhist, and Hindu traditions. And then, a Muslim merchant, Seth Haji Habib, sprang to his feet and declared that this resolution must be passed with God as a witness, that Indians would never yield in cowardly submission to such a law, but would maintain their dignity. The implications of this solemn oath took Gandhi aback. While no stranger to vows in his own spiritual development, he realized that invoking God in this political struggle would demand an unswerving fight to the end. He was personally prepared to take on such a duty, but would the community follow him? And then he wrote about it, Gandhi himself. He said, the meeting heard me word by word in perfect quiet. Several other leaders spoke. All dwelt upon their own responsibility and the responsibility of those present. And at last, all 3,000, standing with arms upraised, took an oath with God as witness, neither to submit to injustice nor to harm a living being. I can never forget the scene which is present before my mind's eye as I write. The enthusiasm and the spirit and the dignity of the community knew no bounds, and satyagraha, the freedom and dignity of human beings, again was reborn. So this is an alternative for you in 9-11 today, as a vision. And when you hear this, then, it's not how it turns out, you know, in a short term, because it was a long process for Gandhi. But it's really how we live. Do not depend on the hope of results, says Thomas Merton. 
you may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless at times and achieve no result, perhaps bring about its opposite. As you understand this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. It's the wisdom of who we really are and where we stand, O nobly born. And the world, your family, your your community, longs for dignity. And everybody, all these groups that are in conflict, want to be respected, want their dignity, want their nobility to be recognized, and longs for reconciliation. One of the most wonderful set of stories you can read is from South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Bishop Tutu writes about it, how people would come, and he said, you know, people who had every reason to hate, you know, their parents were killed in these terrible ways, they would come in and they would say, I just want to know what happened, and I want to know who did it, so that I can look at them, and then I can forgive them. But I need to know the truth. He said, you couldn't imagine. Here's a 16-year-old girl saying, I can forgive my father's killers, but I want to know from their lips what they did, and then I will offer forgiveness. There is something, says Tutu, in us, that if we know the truth, and if this nobility and dignity is touched in us, that wants to respond from the great heart of compassion, from our own Buddha nature, from who we are. So a little reflection for you, as we say, as we come to the end here. Just as you sit, what in your life asks for reconciliation? And how can you best respond to it? What is it in your inner life that asks for reconciliation? What is it in your family and close community that asks for reconciliation? And what is it in the events of the world that asks for your participation in reconciliation. From the Tao Te Ching, says, the master who lives in the Tao has no mind of her own. She works with those around her. She is good to people who are good. She is also good to people who aren't good. This is true goodness. She trusts people who are trustworthy. She also trusts people who aren't trustworthy. This is true trust. She is centered in the Tao and thus she can go where she wishes without danger. She perceives the universal harmony even amidst great sorrow because she has found peace with all things in her own heart. There's a kind of gift that comes from meditation, from centering ourselves in compassion and wakefulness. And it's desperately needed in our lives and in the world. Um, And it doesn't take a lot. Even one person can make all the difference. Thich Nhat Hanh, who says, 
when the crowded refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. They showed the way for everyone to survive. So let's sit for a minute. As you sit, sit with the spirit of reconciliation that within your own heart and body and mind, being, place of reconciliation for all of the opposites of the world that you can rest in their midst with wisdom and kindness. put into your meditation those across the world who could use a moment of reconciliation, who could be touched by this spirit. everyone that you know in difficulty and then the ones you don't know in your great heart of compassion. Before we go out into this summer, fall evening, um, a very brief chant, um, and then maybe you can carry in your own way some of the light that you touched in your own meditation back to the world. In India, when you meet a person, the common greeting is to put your hands together and say, Namaste which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit or Pali is the word namo, which means to honor or bow to, to pay respects to whatever it happens to be, to joy and sorrow and praise and blame and birth and death, to bow to it all with a wisdom and compassionate heart. So I'd like us to chant the word Namo nine times. And as we do, you can inwardly bow with respect to joy and sorrow, to the things that ask your attention in this, your life and in this world. And then we'll go out into the evening. Namo. Harmony. Nah.
spirit of harmony back to everyone that you touch. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.